Well, welcome back to our pastor's class here at Hickory Grove. It's a joy to have you join us as we continue our study through the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. So if I have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me there. This evening, we're going to be in chapter 2. Now, as you're turning there, uh, just a, a reminder, we publish an outline of all of these lessons. You can find it probably attached to this video, or you can go on a church website and you can find it there. And we also want to commend to you an excellent volume. It's a small, user-friendly commentary. This particular volume is by Tony Merida, entitled The Christ-Centered Exposition of the Book of Philippians. And so you can find that in our bookstore, find it on Amazon or wherever you'd like to grab a book, and I recommend it to you. Now, Philippians 2. We're going to be looking at what is often called the famed Hymn of Christ. It's one of the highest points in all the Bible that describes the glory of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's just read it. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, I'll read down through verse 11, and then we'll unpack these few verses this evening. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, whether in heaven and on earth or under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, I ask now that you would come and that you would minister your word to your people. Lord, that you would use me in spite of me as a means to that end. Lift up Jesus, I pray, for his name's sake. Amen. You know, there is nobody, nobody like Jesus. He is, without doubt, the most influential man in all world history. You see, there's none in history that have been written more about than he. <laughs> there are more books about this man than any other, with nobody even coming into a close second. None has been written more about than this man. None have been sung about more than this man. My word, we have hymnals filled with songs exalting this one individual. Surely there were songs exalting the emperors. Surely there were songs exalting the uh, despots of history. But none have been sung about as much as this sovereign, this king, this lord. None has been sung more about than he. None have been defended more than he. There have been more military campaigns in the name of Jesus than surely any other man throughout world history. None have been spoken of more than he. There are countless hundreds and hundreds of thousands of men who proclaim Jesus, preach his word week in, week out, throughout the ages. None have been spoken about more. None have been honored more. There are more institutions named in his honor than surely any other individual in world history. None have been studied more. There are more people that study his words, parse his words, than surely any person. Oh my word, he is more studied than any other. 
indeed. There's, truth be told, there's not another person even remotely as referenced as he. Just think about the very fact that we live in the day 2021 AD, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, and everything before that was BC, before Christ. Even those, the secularists of the day have tried to change it to BCE before Common Era and then CE Common Era, the fact remains it still centers around what had traditionally been dated as the day, uh, the year rather, that Jesus was incarnate. He came in the flesh. All of history turns on this one man. And so the question then becomes, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? The way you answer that question will determine much, indeed most, of what you believe. Indeed, it's the answer to this question, who is Jesus, that differentiates Christianity from many of the great world religions. So, for example, Judaism claims Jesus. I mean, it's the Jewish faith, but it claims that he's just a mere mortal. In other words, he's an unresurrected wise prophet. Islam claims Jesus, but they claim that he's just a mere prophet, and they would subordinate him to the prophet Muhammad. Hinduism claims Jesus. that claims him as a mere holy man. He's just one of many gods. Hin uh, Buddhism claims Jesus. It's going to call him an enlightened man, a remarkably wise teacher. And even New Ageism, Oprah probably typifies this best, even New Ageism is going to claim that he's just a mere moral man. He's exemplary in character. He's one worthy of following in terms of his ethics. But what I want you to see today, and we see this all throughout the scripture, but nowhere more clearly than in Philippians 2, I want you to see that the Jesus of the Bible is infinitely more than a mere prophet, a mere holy man, a mere mortal. He's infinitely more than an enlightened man or a man of exemplary morality. I want you to see that the Jesus of the Bible is glorious beyond compare. And we see most beautifully the glory of Jesus captured in verses 5 through 11 of Philippians 2. These verses have been historically referred to as a hymn of Christ. Perhaps it was sung by ancient believers of old who would exalt in the glory of Jesus. And what I want you to see here is the multifaceted glory of Christ as seen in verses 5 through 11. Three parts of this glory I want to put before you tonight briefly. Number one, if you're taking notes, mark this down. See with me the glory of Jesus' divinity. And look with me, if you will, at verses 5 through 6. It says, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now he's going to start telling us about this Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now I want you to fixate with me for a moment on what's going on here. When you look at verse 6, it says, who, though he was now, when we look at the word was, it infers that it's past tense. So it might naturally lead you to believe that this verse is saying Jesus 
was something, but he's no longer. This is where knowing the original language is beneficial. Because in the original language, huparko, that word means continue. So it would be literally who continued in existence in the form of God. So let's make it even clearer. What Paul is telling us in this moment is he is saying, Jesus who has always been in the form of God. Jesus who has existed as God. Now let's talk about that word form because that might throw you off too. You see that word form and you might think, is that kind of like a kind of God or is he look like God but he may not be God? That word form in the original language is morphe and that word morphe means the essential nature or attributes that would never change. So I know this is a little confusing. Let's just take one step back and let's put it in the most simplistic of terms. What this text is telling us is that Christ Jesus has always had a divine nature. That's what I want you to see. The glory of Jesus' divinity. First notice with me the glory of his divine nature. He has always existed with the essential nature or attributes of God. That's what he means when he says, who was in the form of God. This is what Colossians 1.15 tells us when it describes Jesus as the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This is what John tells us in John 1, 1 and 2 when he says, In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is God himself. This is what the writer of Hebrews said when in Hebrews 1 verses 2 and 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is God in the flesh. Jesus has always existed with a divine nature. Christ Jesus, verse 6 says, who was in the form of God. Translation, who has always existed with the essential nature or attributes of God. Praise be to God that we worship Jesus who in his glorious divinity had, always had, a divine nature. But I want you to notice, secondly, in the latter half of verse 6, we're going to notice something else. Not only did Jesus possess the glory of a divine nature, I want you to notice that Jesus possessed the glory of a divine identity. Now notice with me, if you will, the latter half of verse 6. It says, He did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Now, what does he mean, equality with God? And then why would he negate that? Why would he say he, he doesn't have that? It almost sounds like Paul's telling us that Jesus was not equal to God. And I want you to notice with me that what Paul is saying is that Jesus was equal to God and he renounced it. He did not claim all the rights and benefits thereof. So here's what's happening. Paul is saying that Jesus, who has always existed as divine, who is God, he did not count the very equality he had with God something to hold on to, something to cling to, something to maintain. In other words, what Paul is saying is Jesus willingly gave up 
renounced, as it were, some of the rights and privileges of his divinity. He did not give up his divinity. Jesus remained God. He is fully God. He has always existed as fully God. And we're going to get to his humanity in the moment. But he didn't seize all the rights and privileges of his divinity. So let's think for a second about what he may have given up. What did he not seize? Well, just as an illustration, consider one of the famous stories in Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Satan keeps tempting Jesus to do all these things and recall, Jesus could have easily at that moment called the angels to protect him. He could have snapped his fingers and vanquished Satan, but Jesus had not grasped equality with God in his humanity. Jesus willingly took on flesh. Jesus experienced the full temptation that came with humanity. Jesus did not grasp it as it were. So this is what's going on here. Now, if if you are thinking, man, this is kind of tough to compartmentalize, I want you to know that you're in good company. What we are talking about is the glory of Jesus We're talking about an aspect of Jesus that has been debated throughout church history and is part of his otherness. It's part of his godness. We don't have a parallel. We don't experience these two natures of Christ. We are mortals. Jesus is divine. He is God. And then you need to notice that though he was God, divine in nature and divine in identity, he was in fact equal to God. He was God. I want you to notice that Jesus' glory does not stop at his divinity. Jesus was God in the flesh, or is, I should say, God in the flesh. So we can confidently look and glory in the fact that, number two, not only should we notice the glory of Jesus' divinity, I want you to notice now the glory of Jesus' humanity. And look with me, if you will, at verse 7 and 8. It says, but he emptied himself. Now that's been a confusing word. We'll come back to it. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now I want you to notice with me a few aspects of Jesus' humanity. What happens here is that Jesus, who is God himself, did not grasp equality with God. He willingly renounced or gave up certain aspects of deity, which we're going to talk about what that means in a moment. And in particular, it says he emptied himself. Now that word emptied himself is an interesting word. In the original language, it's the word kenosis. And It has caused a lot of heartburn and and consternation over the years. For some have interpreted it to mean that Jesus willingly emptied aspects of, or you could say attributes of his deity. He gave up part of his godness, or he gave up most, if not all, of his godness in exchange for his humanity. But that theory has been largely uh, debunked. That theory has been largely contradicted by the the broad stream of Orthodox uh, Christianity, which has said, which has taught, I mean, this this is early church councils we're talking about now. This has largely centered on this truth, that when Jesus emptied himself, his deity was, for lack of a better word, veiled, but not voided. In other words, Parts of his godness were not as perceptible as ordinarily they might be. 
He was veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. I want you to see that when Jesus emptied himself, what he did is he willingly gave up. He did not grasp certain rights and privileges of deity. He gave them up. John MacArthur lists out five, and I'm sure you could probably differentiate more in your mind. This is us kind of encroaching on ground that we're never going to know for sure till we're in glory with him. But John MacArthur delineates five. He talks about Jesus emptying himself of some of his divine glory his divine authority. He even talks about certain divine attributes where in his mind he was limited in some of the things that he in his flesh knew, uh, emptied himself of divine riches, and even says of his divine fellowship with the Father. This is part of the mystery of the incarnation where Christ came and took on flesh and was in ways that are honestly difficult to comprehend, difficult to even articulate clearly. He had this strange union of humanity and divinity. We call this the hypostatic union. There's a word you can go impress your friends with. This is where the two natures of Christ, his divinity and his humanity, come together. And herein lies the mystery. Orthodoxy teaches that Jesus did not exist as 50% God and 50% man, or sometimes God and sometimes man, We believe that Jesus existed fully as God and fully as man, 100% God and 100% man. Not 100% God appearing as man or not 100% man appearing as God. This was mysterious. Jesus came in this dual-natured role, the glory of Jesus' humanity, which we see through his supernatural birth. Because part of his... uh, emptying himself, was coming in human form. It says that he came in the form of a servant in the likeness of men. Now that form of a servant, again, that is referring to him humiliating himself, coming and debasing himself as the great God of the universe. He came and took on the form of a slave, a bondservant, a doulos. He came to serve. He came to abase himself. This is the glory of the Christian gospel. And it says he came in the likeness of men. Now that word likeness might make it you think, okay, he kind of looks like him. But in the original language, that word is referring to Jesus taking on humanity in human form. Now, that word form is unlike the last time we saw the word form. The last time we saw the word form, that word was morphe. This time, as we see the word form, that word is schema, schema. And that word refers to his appearance. So when it says he took on the appearance uh, or the human form, it says that he took on the appearance of man. He manifestly looked like a human. So had you interacted with Jesus, you would have, he was a human. It's not like he was like some sort of angelic being walking around with a halo over his head. He had the appearance of man because he was. It wasn't some sort of appearing where it just, he appeared to look like man. He was a human, 100% God and 100% man. Born of a virgin, a supernatural birth. I want you to see also he had a sinless life. This is part of the glory of his humanity. Notice that word obedient. In verse 8 it says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. One of the glories of Jesus' humanity is not just that he was born of a virgin, supernaturally born. One of the glories of Jesus' humanity is that he also had a sinless life. He perfectly obeyed God. It says to the point of death. Jesus 
perfectly fulfilled the law of God to the point that he was maligned and murdered for his obedience. He was hated by those who claimed to love the law. Jesus was perfectly obedient. He never, ever sinned. See the glory of his supernatural birth, the glory of his sinful life. And then lastly, notice with me the glory of his sacrificial death because it says to the point of death, even death on a cross where Jesus was crucified. Now, this wasn't an angel hanging on a cross. This was a fleshly man. This was an individual. This was a human being hanging on the cross, experiencing the full weight of the pain of crucifixion. Jesus was heaving, crying out with blood dripping down. He experienced the pain that we would experience. Jesus was a human. He had a mind and will and emotions that would have been like any of us. Jesus was a man. The big difference was he was the son of God. He had the mystery of the incarnation, two natures. He did not experience uh, the effects of sin like we did. He was tempted in every which way, the Bible says, yet he was without sin. Praise be to God for the mysterious glory of Jesus' divinity and Jesus' humanity. But let's conclude our time this evening with one third and final thing. We're going to notice one aspect of his glory that's still on the table as we see in verses 9 through 11. Number three, see finally the glory of Jesus' supremacy. You could call it his exaltation because notice what happens after we see the glory of his humanity and divinity. In verse 9 it says, Therefore, in light of all of this, therefore, God has highly exalted him. How has God exalted him? He was exalted at one time. Jesus has been in the past highly exalted through his resurrection, where upon death on the cross, Jesus was not left dead and buried, but the Father triumphantly resurrected Christ from the dead, demonstrating to a watching world that his sacrifice had been accepted, that the penalty of sin had been paid, that when Jesus cried out to Telestai, it is finished, God affirmed it and God saw that sacrifice and he raised him from the dead and exalted him through his resurrection and then his ascension where Jesus exists to this day, ascended in glory in heaven. This was the exaltation of God to Christ. Christ was exalted by God through his resurrection and through his ascension. And notice what it says next. And it says, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So what God has done is he's not just exalted Jesus. He has bestowed on Jesus. He has exalted Jesus presently. He has sovereign reign and rule over creation. Jesus is exalted. He is on his throne. He has bestowed uh, this moment the name that is above every name, which is why we cry out and praise the name of Jesus. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. That's why his name is lifted up, because Jesus not only was exalted, he is presently exalted, and praise be to God, one day he will fully and finally and forevermore be exalted. He will be exalted, for it says, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem, which is a crown, and crown him Lord of all. 
we are going to praise the name of Jesus. We are going to sing with the angelic cherubim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We are going to praise him. We are going to sing worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive honor, glory, wisdom, power, might, strength, and blessing. We are going to sing forevermore of the supremacy and exaltation of Jesus, our God in the flesh, eternally God and eternally man, and worthy of all our praise. What a hymn. What glory. We ought to praise the name of Jesus, our eternal God, and the Son of the living God. Would you join me as we pray? Father, I ask now that you would come and that you would open our eyes to behold the glory of Jesus. Do this, we pray, for the sake of his name. Amen.